Uh, in the book of Romans so far, uh, Paul has laid out the gospel. He's gone through and said, this is the truth of the gospel. And now he's getting ready to transition, transitioning between what we should believe to what we should do. So this passage is really a, a bridge, what we call the indicative, what we should believe, and the imperative, what we should do, what God is commanding us and calling us to do. Uh, so with that in mind, let's turn and look at this bridge between what we're supposed to believe and what we're to do. Romans 12, 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to think of it rightly. Father, prepare our hearts to listen and to apply your word. Lord, prepare my heart to preach your word. Uh, Would you be glorified and will we be sanctified through your word? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Well, there's a little bit of a game I like to play when I was a kid. It's basically a question we like to ask each other. We, We didn't realize how serious house fires were then. So you ask yourself, well, if your house is on fire, and, you know, assuming everybody's okay, what's the one thing that you would go back for? Okay, you, you might have played this game before, too, when you were small. If your house was burning down, what's the one thing that you would go down for? Again, kids tend to play, it, tend to play this game because you don't realize how serious it is. But anyway, my usual answer was I would probably go back for my baseball glove. Okay, now that said a couple of things about me. I, of course, I liked baseball, so my glove was precious to me. Uh, but it really said... What was most important to my life is having fun, right? I mean, I'm a kid. I'm 8 or 10 years old or somewhere in there. The basic thing that my life depends on, what, what I give my life to, is having a good time. Now, I bring that question up because it helps us see an assumption. It helps us see that we all have some fundamental commitment in life. Okay, there's something for each of us that we're devoted to more than anything else. Now, we all have multiple commitments. Each one of you, you have multiple things you're committed to. But there's always something. There's one commitment that seems to trump everything else. There's one commitment that we give ourselves to more than anything else. Now, I'm not just talking about a top priority. I'm talking about the thing that determines your top priorities. It's not what, just what you consider most important. is why do you consider that thing most important? What are you com- most committed to that makes you arrange your life the way you do? All of us have this. Even if we're not fully aware of what it is, we have a fundamental commitment in life, something that we are devoted to over and above everything else. It's something that drives everything else and that we are devoted to. So a good question is, well, what should we give ourselves to? What should we devote ourselves to? What should be our fundamental commitment in life and why? Because, you know, this is a pretty big question. This is asking, what are you going to most give yourself to? So we need to have a good reason. Okay, why am I going to give myself to this thing? Why is it going to be what I devote my life to? We've read the text, so you know the answer to this question. What should we give ourselves to? Well, Paul says we should give ourselves to serving God. Uh, Look back through the text and see what he says. Uh, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So to present your bodies, he's saying, present yourself to God for service. Appear before him, stand before him as his servant. Offer all of yourself, offer your bodies, all that you are to God for his service. He says do this as a living sacrifice. Uh, consider yourself dead to everything else but God. Uh, a living sacrifice is almost an oxymoron, but sacrifice everything else. Consider yourself dead to everything else so that you can present yourself alive to God, 
so that you can hear his commands and do his will and do what pleases him. And to be a holy and acceptable sacrifice to God. He literally says, be a living, holy, and acceptable sacrifice to God. Be holy and acceptable. Uh, Try to please God in everything that you do. This is what Paul is calling us to. The presentation of our entire persons as a sacrifice to God. And so obviously this goes beyond saying, make God your top priority. This is more than just keeping God first in our life. It is saying, devote your entire being to him. Make him the center of gravity in your life. Don't just, put him above, don't just put him above everything else on the list. Put him in the center of everything else. And let everything in your life, everything else, rotate around God. Let him be the center of gravity that determines the way you do everything else. Devote yourself, sacrificially offer your life to him. He says it in really strong terms. We get the picture, right? Really give yourself to God. But he gives us really interesting answer as to why we should do that. He, he gives us reasons why we should do this. Uh, the big reason that he gives why we should do this is that because it is our spiritual worship. Paul says, do this, this is your spiritual worship. Now, you probably see a footnote, if you have a pew Bible, you see a footnote in the ESV, in your pew Bible, that says, spiritual worship can also be translated as rational service. It's sometimes called rational service or reasonable service. Uh, The word, the Greek word that's translated is logikos. So he's really saying this is your logikos service, this is your logical service. This is according to your nature. This is what you should do in light of the gospel. This is what you should do. This is what makes sense. It's logical. And so this sermon is about why it makes so much sense. Why is it so logical to devote ourselves to God? Why is it so logical to offer ourselves to Him as a living sacrifice? So I want to look at two reasons. We should devote ourselves to God as living sacrifices because of what He's done for us, because of His mercies. And we should also devote ourselves, devote ourselves to God because who God is making us is what we're made for. Okay, so first of all, we should devote ourselves, we should devote our lives to God because of his mercies. Okay, look again at Paul's appeal. He says, I appeal you, therefore, brothers. He's saying, I'm making this case before you. I'm making appeal, an appeal before you by the mercies of God. Now, that can be translated because of the mercies of God. If you have an NIV, it probably says, in view of God's mercies. So, on the basis of God's mercies, He's saying the reason for this appeal is God's mercies. On that basis, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your entire person as a sacrifice to God, and you should do so because of his mercies. That's what he's saying to us. And so we need to think about, well, what are God's mercies? Now, all through chapters 1 through 11, Paul has been laying out to us God's mercies. This is the gospel. Let's look back and see what he says. Uh, Look back in Romans, what Paul has covered so far, and let's think about all that God has done for us, all of his mercies. Uh, Well, first of all, he's justified us. He's made us righteous in Christ. Uh, In chapters 1 through 3, Paul is making the case that all mankind, everyone, we're we're all sinners. We've all rejected and refused to acknowledge God, and we've all broken his holy law. We've done things that we know in our heart, we know these things were wrong. We know in our heart it's wrong. We deserve his wrath. We are under God's wrath. We are guilty before him. But there's good news. God has had mercy. In his mercy, he's justified us. He's forgiven us and made us righteous through Christ. In Romans 3, 24 through 25, it says, You've been justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. God, in mercy for us, sent His own Son to bear the penalty His justice demanded so that we wouldn't have to. What mercy? You were guilty before God, and He's justified you. He's made you righteous by His Son, by the blood of His own Son. That's mercy. 
Second of all, he hasn't just justified us, he sanctified us. He, he's made us holy. Uh, in chapter 6 of Romans, Paul tells them, you were enslaved to sin. Sin not only made you guilty, you were enslaved to it, and it was ruining your life. Sin always has bad consequences. Okay? It, it does damage. That's why God has such strong prohibitions against sin. It does damage to our lives. It's bad stuff we should stay away with. Stay away from it. But Paul tells us we had a big problem because even though sin did so much damage, we couldn't stay away from it. We were enslaved to it. We were addicted to it. But God saw this, and he was moved in mercy for us. Uh, after Christ's death for our justification, he rose from the dead and ascended for our sanctification. He ascended to heaven, and he, from there, from God's right hand, Jesus has sent to us the Holy Spirit to renew us and to remake us, to make us in his image, to free us from sin so that we can become God's servants. He sanctified us. God is saving us from the power of sin over us and the damage that it does. Also, God's adopted us. That's more mercy. He's made us his children. In Romans 8, it says, God's Spirit lives in you and testifies that you are the children of God. Paul's making the case that God's Spirit is now in you if you're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you belong to God. You're his children. And because of that, nothing can separate you from his love. Not anything in all of creation. Uh, He has that great verse at the end of Romans 8 about how nothing in all of creation, neither height nor depth nor things seen nor unseen, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing in our past, nothing in our future. God has adopted us. We're under his constant care and provision. That's mercy. God is merciful to us. Uh, Finally, not only has he justified us, sanctified us, and adopted us, God will glorify us. Uh, Again, in Romans 8, Paul is talking about how God is making us new and how he's going to bring us into the new world that he's creating. He's talking about how creation groans for this new world that God's making. God's not only making us new, he's making all of the world new. And so all creation is groaning for this new world where God comes and makes everything right. And Paul assures us that if we're in Christ, we're going to be there. In Romans 8.30 he says, And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. He also glorified you already. Even though it hasn't happened yet, it's as as good as done. You can be assured that he'll continue to be merciful to you. Look at what he's planned for your future. And so when we look at all these mercies, Paul says, look at all these mercies. That's why you should give yourself as an offering to God. Why you should live as a living sacrifice. In view of his mercies, because of his mercies, give yourself to God. Make serving God your fundamental commitment in life. Paul is telling us, God has given himself fully to you already in the gospel. You should give yourself fully to him. Just think about it. God the Son in the gospel He's given himself for our justification. He's given his blood. He he gave his life. He came down off of his throne. He he gave up the glory, the eternal glory. He he put it aside for a while so that he could come down and stoop down to us and give his blood for us. That's mercy. God the Son has given himself for us. It makes sense that we would give ourselves to him. Think about God the Spirit. God the Spirit has given himself to us for our sanctification. The Bible talks about God living within us in the Holy Spirit. We have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He's given himself to us in his presence with us. It's only logical that we give ourselves to him. God the Father has given himself to you for your adoption. He has placed himself under obligation. He has given you his resources. He gives you his attention, his time. He gives you his care and his affection. God is giving himself to us. The only logical response is that we give ourselves to him. He did this when we were his enemy, under his wrath, enslaved from sin and away from God. God gave himself to us. The only logical response is that we give ourselves to him. 
in, in Luke 7, Jesus tells a story kind of about this. He tells a story about when we see the extent of God's mercy, what happens to us and how it makes us treasure that mercy above everything else. Uh, in the story, you know it, it's a pretty famous parable. Uh, Jesus, or it's actually not a parable, something that happened in Jesus' life, but Jesus is at the house of Simon the Pharisee. And Simon the Pharisee is, of course, uh, pretty wealthy because he's able to throw this big dinner party and he's uh, a fairly righteous man because he's a Pharisee who is committed to the law and so he's probably fairly self-righteous, very religious. And so while he's there, while Jesus is in this house, a woman who's known around town for being so sinful, a woman known to be sinful, comes and she takes this alabaster flask of ointment, okay, this big alabaster jar filled with perfume or something like that. And so it's very, very expensive. And so she takes it and she pours it upon Jesus. She's giving up her valuable possessions. She's pouring it on Jesus. Not only does she do that, she sits at his feet and weeps. And then she dries his wet feet that are wet from her tears with her hair. She washes his dirty feet with her tears. And so when Jesus sees this, he talks to Simon. And he says, Simon, I want to tell you something. You see this woman? This is what happens when somebody realizes the extent of forgiveness. This is what happens when somebody sees how great God's mercy is. He says it this way, This woman loves much because she's been forgiven much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. When you see how rich and deep God's mercy to you is and how badly you need it, he becomes incredibly precious to you. When we see how wonderful God's mercy is, we begin to treasure Christ above all else. I think that's Paul's reasoning here. Paul's reasoning is that when you see God's mercies, in view of God's mercies, when you see that, you give yourself to God as a living sacrifice. And so what we need to do, we need to do two things from this passage. First of all, we need to meditate and learn to rejoice in the mercies of God. Just think about God's mercies to us as our Creator. God sustains our life. Everything that we have is from God. Mike prayed when we gave the offering. God, we thank you. Everything we have is from your hands and we give it back to you. Everything that we have, every good that you enjoy, uh, every time you feel happy, every time you feel excited about something, these are good gifts from the hand of God. We should rejoice in that. We should celebrate that. God is not obligated to give us anything, but from his mercy, from the fountain of his grace, he pours out blessings on us. He is merciful to us as our creator. Even though we've rebelled against him as our creator, he's still merciful to us. Uh, Jesus says God makes the rain. He sends rain to the just and the unjust. Uh, he, do, he does good things to the godly and the ungodly. Look at God's mercy as our creator. He does good things to the ungodly. And second, think about God's mercy as our redeemer. We've already been through it. God, how he justifies us, sanctifies us. We need to continue to remember that. We need to continue to remember how much we need his mercy. How we were guilty, enslaved, and lost. How we are destined for eternal misery without him. We need to remember that so that we can remember the extent of his mercy, so that we can remember how fully and finally and how well God's mercy covers all that's wrong with us, how we need to remember the extent of his mercy. In him, we're justified. We're no longer guilty. We're sanctified. We're no longer enslaved. We've been adopted. We're no longer lost. We will be glorified. We're no longer destined for eternal misery. Look at God's mercy. Think about how bad you need it, and think about the extent of it. And we need to make the habit of meditating on that. We need to be in the habit of thinking about God's mercy. We need to be in the habit of rejoicing in that mercy. This is good news. This is good news that God's merciful to us. The God of heaven who created us, who made us, who we rebelled against, has had incredible mercy on us. We need to rejoice in that. 
And so God has given us opportunities to rejoice in that. Think about the opportunities we have to rejoice in God's mercy that he's provided for us. First of all, he's given us his word. God has given us the Bible, and he's done that so that we can read and think about his mercy. So that we can see the story of redemption. See how God has created us. See how he is redeeming us. See his mercy in that. And so that we can praise him for it. So that we can give himself, give ourselves so that we can rejoice in that mercy. Uh, we need to rejoice in his mercy through prayer. In prayer, we bring our request to God and we experience his mercy. Uh, prayer is an experience of God's mercy because the one who created us is inviting us to make our needs known to him. He wants to pour out his mercy to us. He wants to pour out his grace. Prayer is a way to think about, to rejoice in the mercy of God. Uh, talking with each other, the communion of saints. Uh, the communion of saints, our conversations, our sharing our life together. That's a way to rejoice in God's mercy. We see how God's been merciful to each other. We tell each other about God's mercies. We declare his excellencies to each other. And that encourages us. That helps us rejoice in his mercy more and more. And corporate worship. Corporate worship is a way for us to come and celebrate God's mercy. It's a time where we can come and we know we're here, not because any of us deserve to be here, only because God has been merciful. He's been gracious to us. We need to remember and celebrate and rejoice in God's mercies. That's what Paul's telling us. He's telling us that the mercies of God motivate us giving ourselves to God. So the first step we need to think about, we need to rejoice in, we need to meditate on those mercies until we find our heart ready to give itself to God. And then, once we do that, we need to present our bodies as living sacrifices. We need to make pleasing God, uh, we need to make pleasing to God of such vast mercy the aim of our life. The goal of our life is to live to please God. That's what God's calling us to. He needs to be our fundamental commitment. So when we think about this, when I think about the language living sacrifice, especially when I was a teenager, I think, okay, if I'm really going to give myself to God, I have to go into full-time vocational ministry or something like that. I happen to do that. Uh, but that was wrong for me to understand it that way. It was wrong for me. Giving yourself to God doesn't mean uh, that we uh, do something different with your life. It doesn't mean that you go into full-time Christian service or something like that. It means right now, in everything that you're doing right now, in your job, in your family life, in all your commitments, in everything that your life is involved in, do everything in such a way to please God. Do everything in such a way that reflects your devotion to God. He's given himself to you in his mercy. We should, in response to that mercy, give ourselves to him to please him in everything. The reason this makes so much sense, the reason it's so logical to give ourselves to God and to nothing else, to commit ourselves to him and nothing else, is because nothing else you give your life to is going to be this good or loving or generous or forgiving. There's nothing else that you can commit yourself to that's going to be this merciful. But think about an example. Whatever we give ourselves to, whatever we devote ourselves to, that thing masters us. So every master, every master we give ourselves to, other than God, it always takes more than it gives. Uh, think about your job. If you make your job the ultimate, your ultimate commitment in life, what's going to happen? Okay, if you really work at your job, if you're really good at it, it might give you back a good salary. Uh, it might give you some prestige and maybe a sense of fulfillment. But only after you put in long, grueling hours. Only after you suffer for it. If you, let's take another example. If you give yourself... Uh, to getting the approval of, of others. If you give yourself to making people like you, this is going to happen. It might give you back a few compliments. You might uh, get some people to like you or respect you, but it's only after you work real hard to be really nice or really cool or whatever it is, and it's only after you over-evaluate every decision and make sure people are going to like you. You have to think about every little thing you're going to do to make sure, okay, what are, what's everybody else going to think about this? 
See the slavery that our jobs and the approval of others puts us under when we give ourselves to those things? They make us suffer for it, don't they? God's not like that. God doesn't make us suffer. God suffered for us. He's the only master that's going to give before he gets anything. He's the only master that's going to give more than he gets. The only master who would suffer for us, for our good, to redeem us. There's nothing else you can give yourself to that's going to do that for you. Not your job, not even your family, uh, not the approval of others, not success in life. Nothing else that you can give yourself to is going to do that for you. Only God is that merciful. Only God is that gracious. So it only makes sense to give ourselves to this God. Let Him master us. Present ourselves as a living sacrifice. So Paul is saying, first of all, think about what God's done for you and let that motivate you to offer yourself completely to Him. And secondly, don't just think about what He's done for you. Think about what God is doing in you and who He's making you by, your, by His grace and let that motivate you as well. So second thing, we should devote our lives to God because it's what we're made for. Okay, Paul made the point in Romans chapter 1 that we are created by God and for God. Uh, we are created to give Him our worship and service. In chapter 1, he's talking about the guilt of mankind. He's talking about how all mankind is under the wrath of God and how we've all rebelled against Him. And he identifies our kind of fundamental problem. This is the sin that where it all went wrong. He says this, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. He's reasoning that we are made to worship and serve our Creator. And that's evident by how horrible everything went when we worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator. See, that, that's where it really went wrong, where we decided that we were going to worship and serve, give ourselves to the creature rather than the Creator. And Paul says that's so wrong because we are made to give ourselves to our Creator. We were made to devote ourselves to our Creator. So here he's making the point that we should serve and worship, we should serve and worship God because it's what we're made for. It's only logical, isn't it? If we are made by God and for God, it's only logical that we live life for God. That's what he says in Romans 1. And here, in this passage, he's making a slightly different point. Here, he's making the point that we should serve and worship God because it's what we're being remade for. Okay, We are made to serve and worship God, and we fell from that. We fell from that condition where we are alive to God, serving and worshiping Him. We fell in sin. We fell in slavery to sin, which eliminated the possibility of us worshiping God eliminated the possibility of us serving God. But God, in His mercy, we've already talked about, He's sanctified us. He's remaking us. He's renewing us. And so He's doing that so that we can give ourselves to Him. Uh, look in verse 2. It says, Do not be conformed to this world. So Paul's saying, Don't fit the mold of this world. And it's a little bit in- well, it's interesting that he would use language, What's he talking about this world? This particular world? It's obvious. He must have another world in mind. He must be thinking of a different world. So Paul is hinting here towards the world to come. Again, we mentioned already in Romans 8, it talks about God is not just redeeming us, He's redeeming all things. He's seeing the problem of the world, how everything's been affected by sin, and He's undoing all that. He's remaking all that. He's renewing the heavens and the earth. And so that's our hope, that Christ is going to come, He's going to bring the kingdom of heaven down to earth, and He's going to renew all things. And when He does that, He's going to gather us to Himself. And so as we wait for that coming world, God is preparing us for it. He's making us new for the new world. That's why in uh, verse 2 as well, Paul says, Be transformed. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Uh, literally, he says, uh, the word he uses is metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is when one thing changes. It's like it goes from one nature to another. So Paul is saying, undergo a metamorphosis. Take on a new nature. This is what God has promised to do in us, isn't it? 
God has promised in Ezekiel 36 when he was telling about what he would do for his people. He's saying, I'm going to give them a new nature, a new heart. Uh, you've fallen into sin and corrupted your hearts, but I'm going to make you new. Listen to Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. This is God's promise, what he was going to do in the gospel. He says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God's saying, I'm going to give you a new nature, a new heart, so that you can please me, so that you can walk in my way, so that you can love me, so that you can be careful to obey my rules. So Paul's exhortation to us here is to live in line with this new nature. Be true to this new heart God has given you and worked in you, that he is working in you. Live as a new creation. He gives a similar exhortation in Ephesians 3, 22-24. He says this, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. So he's saying, put on the new self. Live with a renewed mind. Live as new creation. And you do that by living after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So how do you live with the new redeemed self God has made you? In righteousness and holiness. Being a holy and acceptable sacrifice is logical for those created and redeemed by God because it's in accordance with their nature. That's what logical means, in accordance with nature, within accordance with what's right. So living as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, it's in accordance with our new nature, with the new heart God has given us. It's how to live as his new redeemed people. Uh, Listen to this quote. This is a quote from... uh, it's a first century Greek philosopher called Epictetus. That's how, that's my best guess at how to pronounce his name. Uh, and he says this, he, he's talking about what's logical, and he says this, If I were a nightingale, I would do what is proper to a nightingale. And if I were a swan, what is proper to a swan? But in fact, I am logikos, so I must praise God. In fact, I am logikos. I am a reasonable, per- reasonable person. I am a rational being. So... I must praise God. It only makes sense for me. It's in accordance with my nature. It's what I was made to do. Living to devotion to anything else but God is unnatural. If we were made and redeemed to live for God, then when we live for anything else, when we give our lives, when we devote ourselves to anything else, it's unnatural. Uh, Again, in Romans 1, that's what Paul is saying. When mankind devoted themselves to the creature rather than the creator, they started living unnatural lives. They live in a perversion of nature in every way. It's a perversion of our created and redeemed nature when God isn't our fundamental commitment in life. Making anything else ultimate is not only idolatry, it's nonsensical. When we make anything besides God ultimate, it's not only idolatry for us, it just doesn't make any sense. It's nonsensical and unnatural. So we need to be transformed. We need to live as transformed people. Uh, when Paul tells us to be transformed, it suggests both that the transformation is affected by God and that believers must cooperate for that to take place. Okay, let me say that again. When Paul tells us to be transformed, he's telling us to do something that's really passive. To be transformed is something that happens to you. But Paul is telling us to do that. So it's suggesting that our being transformed is both something that God does and something that we cooperate with. This is the doctrine of sanctification. That when God makes us new, when he works in us, we cooperate in that. We pursue sanctification as God works sanctification in us. So God is doing it. We can't transform ourselves. 
But we obviously had to have a role to play in this, or Paul wouldn't have commanded it. So what is our role? How do we cooperate with, what's God do- with what God is doing? So there are many ways to answer that. There are many ways to answer the question, well, how do we pursue sanctification? How do we cooperate with what God's doing? But I just want to give one. I give one answer. Read and meditate on the Bible. Uh, Paul tells us that this transformation comes with the renewal of our minds. Uh, so instead of being conformed to this world, we need to learn how to think in light of the gospel. That's what he's saying with the renewal of your minds. He's saying you're, you are new, you're created from the new world, you're being transformed, you have a new nature. So think new. Think in light of that gospel. And the way we do that is we give ourselves to Scripture. Or we give ourselves to God's Word. In God's Word, we learn to see life the right way. Uh, we see life in light of the gospel, in light of God's mercies, in light of God's coming kingdom when we read Scripture. So every time the Bible tells us what we should believe, it's telling us how to understand life. It's telling us if you want to understand life the right way, if you want to know the grand narrative of life, if you want to know where everything's headed, where all of history is headed, read the Bible. Read the Bible and have a new sense of what's true in the world. See the world the right way through the truths of Scripture. This is how you'll understand life better. This is how you'll be logical. And every time it tells us what to do, every time it tells, gives us a command, it's telling us how to live life. It's saying this is the best way to live life. If you want to live a life that's good and full and enjoyable and rich, do what God commands. Because He's the one who created us. He's the one who knows the way the world works best. And He's the one who knows the way we should live and what's going to make us happy and what's going to be fulfilling and what's going to give a rich, full, good life. He's the one who knows what's logical to do. So you see, the Bible, it helps us see and live in a logical way. We need to give ourselves to it. I encourage you, meditate on it, read it, take it in any way you can, whether it's listening to sermons, whether it's having a quiet time every morning, whether it's memorizing scripture, take in the Bible. It renews the way we see life. And that's the way we can live as transformed people. That's the way we can live as living sacrifices to God. That's the way we can live logical lives. Let yourself be so steeped in the scriptures that they affect the way you see everything and start living as a new creation God is making you. We all have to be devoted to something, don't we? We all have to have something that we give ourselves to, something that is chief above everything else. And we have many commitments, but there's always that one commitment that trumps everything else. Because of what God has done for you, because of his incredible mercy to you, because of what he's doing in you now, because he's remaking you and redeeming you and sanctifying you, give yourself to God. It only makes sense. There's nothing else that will be so merciful, and there's nothing else that you were made for. There's nothing else that will fit you so well. There's nothing else that is so logical. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for your mercies. Father, I pray that you would take your word and you would hide it in our hearts and that you would help us think about it and that you would help us meditate on it. Uh, I pray that you would help us rejoice in your mercies also that we can give ourselves completely to you so that we can present ourselves as a living sacrifice so that you would be glorified in us and through us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll continue our worship by singing hymn number 509, Jesus, Lover of My Soul. Please stand as we sing. I apologize, sorry. Uh, That's hymn 562, All to Jesus I Surrender. Hymn number 562.